0: Amen. What a beautiful, beautiful song uh, there in the story of Jesus. And that's kind of what we've been doing over the past several weeks. We've been telling the story of Jesus in comparative language, meaning that we are trying to put forth the concept, the idea that Jesus is unparalleled or unequal that there is no one in the history of man like Him. Alright? You know, the world likes to put all the religions together, right? They have have Confucianism, uh, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Catholicism, Christianity, other religions and try to put them all in a row evenly together. And they say, Whichever box that you choose for religion, it's okay. Because they're all about the same. Nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to God's Word. When it comes to the revelation of God's Word. Jesus is head and shoulders above every other person that ever lived, when it comes to His authority, when it comes to His control over the natural world, when it comes to the healing of the body, even the raising of the dead. That's what we've talked about over the last four weeks. But I want you to look today, is that Jesus is unparalleled. He is completely unique in the words that He said. In the words he said. And this really gets to the root of his differences between other religions of the world. Now, I want you to understand something. As we venture into the unparalleled words of Jesus, I want you to understand uh, that there is no way that in this hour, hour, 45 minutes, hour and a half that you'll give me. No, I won't I won't keep you here an hour and a half, but in the time that you allot me today. There will not be enough time for me to differentiate every one of Jesus' teaching from the teachings of other religions. That's a whole, that's a whole subject that maybe we could look at at a different time. Uh, we could look at Jesus' teaching in many aspects So, uh, in so much as the things that He said about Himself. You know, Jesus said various things about who He was in comparison or Or you know he would often be questioned, "Who are you? Where did you come from?" And he would talk about how he is from the Father, his relationship with the Father. I this message does not have uh, the ability to basically parse those words and look at the character of who Jesus said he was. This message will not look at the prophetic utterances of Jesus. Jesus uttered certain prophecies in his lifetime that came true that only a prophet could give. Only one that had an omniscient mind of God could give. And also prophecies that he uttered in the future that are yet to be fulfilled. And what do we see? Those fulfillments starting to converge and come together. We see it on the news every day. We see it in worldwide headlines. This world is heading to an end. A heading towards a destination. We can see it. This message... we, does not cover that, okay? So I'm just going to look at few aspects of the unparalleled words of Jesus. And I will go into a few things that, he, that is unique about the teachings of Jesus and what He said. So I want you to take your Bible and go to John chapter number 7. And if you will today, I want you to keep your Bible handy, okay? Because we're going to turn to several different places. If you're going to talk about the words of Jesus, and what Jesus said, and His unique words, uh, then then we're just going to have to thumb the different places in the Bible to get a good taste of what Jesus said. And so, I want to start out in John chapter number 7. Take your Bibles. John chapter number 7, and we're going to look at verse number 37. John 7 and verse 37 And I'm going to read down through verse number 46. So it's a longer passage of Scripture. But I want you to listen closely. This is on the heels of John chapter number 6. In John chapter number 6, it is the great chapter on the feeding of the 5,000. How many of you remember the story of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000? How that He... uh, he saw that the people had need, that they were hungry. He had compassion on them, and uh, uh, they, did, they had nothing to eat. His he told His disciples to feed them. The disciples said... A uh, hundred pennyworth is not is not submission to just give a, a crumb to everyone. We don't have enough money, Jesus. And Jesus said, "What do you have?" And remember, Andrew brought that little boy to Jesus. Oh, man, I got a message. Oh, I got a message on that. I love uh, the little boy. Andrew brought the little boy to him, and he offered his little basket, his little lunch. You remember how it was? What? Five loaves and two fishes and how that Jesus, He blessed it and break it and how He gave it to His disciples and He gave it to the disciples to the multitude and how that every person, uh, 5,000 men, not counting women and children, was sufficed filled. I mean, by the end of that chapter, I mean, they couldn't eat another bite, Okay. After chapter number 6, we see the stormy seas and how Jesus comes walking on the water, I believe. Then we get into chapter number 7. And in chapter number 7, it is the after effects of the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus fed the 5,000. Then He walks on the water, comes to them in the midnight hour. And in the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus is confronted by those the next day who wanted that same food, All right, And so Jesus here... His miracle, what what have I been telling you? His miracle is always connected to a message, right? And in John chapter number 7, you see that when they came looking for that food, Jesus told them, I am the bread of life. Remember? Remember that's what He told them? I am the bread of life. And that's the instruction. Well, as He's teaching on this, He gets in verse number 37, and we'll pick up reading in verse 37 down through 46, John chapter 7. Verse 37 All the Father gives me will come to me and whosoever comes to me I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven not of my own will but uh, my own own will but the will of him who sent me uh, the son of Joseph, uh, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be what taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except me, uh, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, uh, truly, I say unto you, whosoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. But here, Jesus expressly tells us that his teaching is from the Father. It comes from the Father. Now, I want to talk to you about the unparalleled words of Jesus. You know, there have been those down through the centuries, and particularly in the day and time in which we live, that assert or that basically say that the person Jesus, known as Jesus of Nazareth, never truly existed. How many of you have ever heard Maybe other people talk about, well, this Jesus, He's nothing more than a legend. He he never really existed. Why, there's no historicity or historical evidence that Jesus ever existed. That all which has been written about Him, why, it's just a distilled likeness of a generational legend. You know, a lot of people equate Jesus with like, Paul Bunyan. Or, or, or some kind of legend that's that's built a regional legend that built up over time that's been passed down. You, you know, you know, there, have, how many have you ever heard the legend of old green eyes down here at the? Yeah, yeah, I saw you grin right there. You've heard the story about green eyes down there at the battlefield in Chickamauga. How there's some there's some ghost of green eyes down there. He's an old soldier. That's a legend. And many people say, well, that's no different from Jesus. It's just a cooked up legend, uh, uh, an legend. Legend that just kind of got blown out of proportion. Listen, I find this, and you'll be relieved to know, that I find this very, very unbelievable, hard to believe, seeing as how the biography of Jesus mentions dates, times, locations, historical landmarks, and people. You're talking about Pontius Pilate. You're talking about Iannis, Caiaphas, other people that lived in that day and time that can be corroborated in history. Locations, Bethany, Gethsemane, Jerusalem, uh, uh, Nazareth, Bethlehem, Judea, all these geographic locations. Listen, Legends don't necessarily have places of orientation such as in the story of Jesus. These sound more like facts than they do fiction. And that the accounts of Jesus' existence are multiple in number and date back to within 20 years after the events which they speak of took place is a chronological measuring rod of reliability accepted by the historical community as a whole. Here's what history... Like uh, you get history professors at universities, here's what they'll tell you. In order to prove the historicity of something, you need more than one source of that history. You just can't have one writing that tells about something. You have to have corroborating sources... From as near as 20 years or 10 years, as close as you can get to the events that take place. We find that, now there's people that will argue, you know, we'll argue, we'll say this, I'll say this, that the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, matter of fact, all the New Testament, matter of fact, all the Old Testament, are our, our divinely inspired truth that is without error. How many would say amen to that? That this Bible records the truth, the plain truth of what happened. It is without error. But other people will say well I don't believe in that. I don't believe in the inspiration of scripture. I don't believe anything else. But they cannot deny the fact that these manuscripts the story, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John of Jesus are within that 20 year period are testified by more than in one sources and can easily, I know it's in the Bible, but can easily be used by the historical community to verify that the person of Jesus existed. And he did speak and he had things to say to this world. But if Jesus, listen, but if that is, let's say the historical community is right, let's say that Jesus is not God, let's say He is the, from the conjuring mind of an ancient Brothers Grimm. You know, Brothers Grimm, they wrote the Cinderella and all the fairy tales. Let's say it was some ancient Brothers Grimm, that wrote the story of Jesus, he made it up out of his mind and he wrote all the words of Jesus now and he began to pass it around as though it was true. Let's say that is the case. Well then, if that is the case, then every one of us should bow down and worship this anonymous author that put this together because the words that he wrote are like nothing that has ever been uttered before what jesus said if it was somebody and i'm not saying that it is but if it was somebody that cooked up these words he's not just a genius he is a divine writer of 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 knowledge that no one has ever possessed no that's not the case i believe that these are the words of jesus The words of one man that walked uniquely across the stage of time that uttered things that have never been said before nor said uniquely in anyone else. Everyone that comes after him is a parrot. if, if If they have the divine truth of what is revealed in this, then they are nothing more than a parrot repeating what Jesus has taught. And so Jesus gave us these words from heaven from His lips. In the long, cumbersome history of mankind, there's never been a man that spoke like Jesus. His claims and teaching all above, above arise above all the others who have ever been raised up before the eyes of men. Moses, Confucius, Buddha, Lao Tse never claimed to be anything other than a sinful man. And yet Jesus said this, I and my Father are one, Who convinces me of sin? Jesus says, You cannot put one finger on my life and point to a sin. Muhammad, Joseph Smith Zoroaster and Guru Nanak of Sikhism never gave any proof that they were the prophets of God and yet Jesus said that it is meat uh, that it was his meat to do the will of his father. It was Jesus as the prophet of God who prophesied his own death by crucifixion and on the third day he would raise his dead body up from the grave. Now I can give it to somebody if they can say hey I'm going to die tomorrow maybe he knew he was flying into some trouble when he went to Jerusalem. I'm going to die tomorrow. But the true prophet of God will say, I'm going to die tomorrow but my disciples, I want you to know, I'm getting up on the third day. And every one of the disciples must have tuned out because they had forgotten all about the fact that he said he would be raised from the dead on the third day. He is the true prophet of God. And what is the guideline of the prophet of God? What is the guideline given in the Old Testament Deuteronomy? That a prophet of God will speak futuristic truth Every time, and it will be verified; it will come to pass. Now, think about this. There there have been people. You take Nostradamus, the writings of Nostradamus. Have you ever read some of the or heard about the Nostradamus and some of the things he writes that are so far fetched that don't make any sense, but in in hindsight could be laid over and. And maybe been true there. You look at other uh, false prophets that have come and made prophecies that have come to pass but others that have not come to pass. In that case if it does come to pass or if it does or doesn't, if it doesn't come to pass Jesus said they're not the prophet of God they should be taken out in stone as a false prophet among the Jewish people. That's the Old Testament law. But in Jesus' case every prophecy he ever made has either come to pass or there is nothing that would refute it coming to pass in the future Here we find that Jesus is the prophet of God. Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, and Krishna are all myths conjured by the minds of men, but Jesus told Thomas, come and put your finger in the scars in my hand and in the wound in my side. Jesus is God in the flesh, the very God to walk the face of this earth. Muhammad confessed he was sinful. Jesus said, who convinces me of sin? Buddha claimed merely to be an enlightened man, Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. Confucius said, as to being a divine sage uh, as, or, or even a good man, far be it from me to make any such claim. And, and Confucius denied that he was divine or even a good man, and yet Jesus claimed to be divine and morally perfect. One can examine all the world's major religions in detail. Hinduism, Jainism, Sikhism, Confucianism, Buddhism, Taoism, Shinto, Judaism, Zoroasterism, Islam, and never find anyone like Jesus. In his book, The World's Living Religions, Professor of History of Religions, Robert Hume wrote this, quote, All of the nine founders of religion with the exception of Jesus Christ are reported in their respective Scriptures as having passed through a preliminary period of uncertainty or of searching for religious life. All the founders of non-Christian religions evidenced inconsistencies in their personal character. And some of them altered their practical policies under charge of circumstances. But Jesus Christ alone is reported as having a consistent God consciousness and consistent character himself and all consistent program for his. Religion again. When you look at the world leaders of religion, such as uh, of religion such as Muhammad, Joseph Smith, uh, Charles Taze Russell, other ones that have led false religions, uh, Buddha, you will find inconsistencies in their personal life versus what they said. But you will never find such in the person of Jesus Christ. John one one said it best: "In the beginning was the." Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That word, Word, there is a word that means, it's a Greek word, logos, and it means message. God's message. Hey, did Jesus come just to do miracles? Did He come as a sideshow to raise the dead and calm troubled waters and, and heal some people with leprosy and open blinded eyes? Is that what Jesus came to do? No, He came with a message of reconciliation with God above. Jesus came as that message. And what does John chapter 1 tell us? That, uh, that, that Word, that Logos was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is all about his message. His message. I tell you, there is no one like Jesus. Now, like I said earlier, I said we will not cover it all. Volumes could be written on pages of paper, it could be written telling us about all that Jesus taught and what he said. But I want us to look. Precisely and pursue it from an angle that just shows a few aspects of Jesus' words that impact us right now. That impact, that says to something to you and I today. So, first of all, I want you to see His words of expressed love. His words of expressed love. You know, some of the most memorable. Words of Jesus are those on the subject of love. Love. Often, when someone uh, proposed, uh, so often when some proposed likeness of Jesus, I don't, I, you've probably seen these, there a lot of times they're in the Catholic vein of artistry, but oftentimes when you see perceived, I uh, uh, see a Perceived likeness of Jesus, whether it's a painting or whether it's a statue, you will oftentimes. Find this, uh, find this European looking guy who's, like, who's got light skin like us, you know, and he, and he long nose, you know, completely different than an Arabic person of the first century. But, but we'll, we'll give it a long, flowing brown hair. But what will you see in that depiction? You'll see a heart, usually shown on the top, with this blazing fire around it. That speaks to the love of Jesus. A love, a compassion, unlike any other, not the twisted misuse of love of the world. And that's what, listen, that's what people will twist about the words of Jesus. They'll take his words of divine love and love for one another and twist them into a gross, a gross representation of the fornicative depravity of this world. They'll turn it upside down and make it something that it's not. Listen, we're not talking about eros, erotic love. When Jesus mentions love, He's not talking about homosexuality. He's not talking about a a love uh, that was in the eros, erotic kind of love. The love that Jesus talks about is an agape love. You'll you'll find these Greek terms, eros, phileo, uh, like Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. It's a brotherly love that we have for each other. Brother and sister love. Then there is eros love. That's the love of a husband and wife for each other, then there is an agape love. It is a selfless love. It is a love of divine origin in God. That is what Jesus spoke most of. It is the highest form of love. The love of God for man and the love of man for God. Agape love. Now when we talk about Jesus and and his words on love, we have to go uh, to first of all, I want you to see a commanded love. Here we go. A commanded love. Uh, notice first of all, the love that Jesus taught was a commanded love. Go take your Bible and go to John or excuse me, Matthew chapter number 22. Matthew chapter number 22. The love that Jesus taught was a Commanded love. The distinct feature of being a follower of Jesus. Matthew chapter number 22. Matthew 22. And then look at verse number 36. Matthew 22 and verse number 36. When someone approached Jesus uh, uh, to try to trip Him up, this is what they said in verse number uh, number 36, Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? Here's what Jesus' response was. And he said to him, You shall love your God with all your heart, and with all, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this, this is the great and first commandment. And the second. It's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. The greatest commandment that you and I are given is to love God. The greatest commandment for you is not to go to church. I want you to go to church. I'd really like it if you go to church. I love to go to church. I love to worship Jesus. I love to read the Bible and find out something new about church. But the greatest commandment is not to go to church. The greatest commandment is not to vote Republican or Democrat. The greatest commandment that God gave us is to love God. Love God. The commandment to adore, to agape, To have a divine... Remember, agape is a love that does not not demand reciprocation. Agape love is a love that is one way. I love God. And I do so without any expectation of God doing anything for me in return. I love God. I am to love God. The greatest commandment is to love God with my body, is to love God with my soul, is to love God with all that is me. Mind, body, and soul. My mind, I occupy my mind with the thoughts of God, with His teachings, what He has to say, with the grandness and the glory of God. I occupy my mind with that. And physically, I occupy uh, I love God with my Actions, and we'll see that in just a minute, a minute. How that our actions of love for God are expressed in love for our fellow man—that's that second commandment. But here we are to love God with all our, with all our mind, with all our body, or our strength and our soul, our emotions, our who we are. We are to love God. That is the first command that He gave us. Such a clarification. You know, when in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, if you go down name it, I think there's some 600 and something laws that are codified in the Jewish Torah. The law of Moses has some 600, uh, 600 laws. And if you read successive Scriptures and you go down, you'll see that that law is narrowed smaller and smaller and given more of a general expression until we come to the person of Jesus. And He says, All of the law of Moses. Remember, that's what he followed up. The law and the prophets are accomplished, are fulfilled by what? I love God. Heart, soul, mind, strength. I love God and I love my neighbor as myself. What amazing words. The greatest commandment is to love God. You know, So many resent and despise God. So many envy and hate their neighbor. But the first and foremost commandment according to the Son of God was to love God and love their fellow man. Even further, Jesus emphasized and went on to tell how His disciples are to love. Now, look, notice what He said. and I won't have you turn there, but if you want to mark it down, John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus has His disciples. John 13 is in the upper room. Right before, the night before His crucifixion, He's sharing with His disciples, his, his basically kind of His last will and testament, those last teachings before He goes to the cross. And look at what He says. John 13, 34 and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another by this All people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. When you get to talking about church in the world at large with people that are unbelievers, one of the main characteristics that comes up about churchgoers in general with people on the outside is they get into what? Fights all the time. They'll tell you some story about a church fight, a preacher runoff, or something like that. They'll tell you some kind of fight, some kind of dissension. They'll get into denominations. You people can't get along. You people, you know, one of the main things that the world tags on the church, or the religious system, or the system of Christianity, is because, well, I tell you, all of them are hypocrites and they hate each other, and they don't, they're just so mean and unkind to each other. Jesus tells us in John 34 and 35 that our command is to particularly. I mean, despite the fact that we're supposed to prefer our neighbor and love our neighbor in that first commandment, the greatest in the first and the second commandment, Jesus further emphasized that the characteristic that the world should know the church is how much they love each other. How much we love each other. How much, and Jesus went so far as to say, as just as I have loved you. Huh. Talk about the bar being up here. How much did Jesus love His disciples? He loved them enough to go to the cross, to shed His precious blood and die for them. You and I are to be known by that same kind of love for each other. And I'm, I'm sure all of you like me ready to get down the altar and get right because oftentimes we are not very good at showing that love to each other. And that ought to be the hallmark. That ought to be what people say about, about this church, of faith community church. That ought to be what people say about your family, your life. And I dare say in every one of our maybe it's true for you, but oftentimes I am so remiss. It's such a basic command to have a love for other people as Christ loved His disciples. When the world looks at us, they have an overwhelming opinion that we hate each other. It is not that we love each other. That's not the first thing that the world thinks of when they think of the Christian church. You see, that is a commanded love. Notice second of all, not only a commanded love, but a condescending love. A condescending love. Jesus not only told us of the requirement of our love for God and of love for each other, He revealed to us God's love for us. God's love for us. Uh, although this is not new, when you study the Bible, you will find in the Old Testament God's love for humanity. Time and time again, the psalmist songs told of the great loving kindness of the Lord. You can't read the psalms very far without hearing how the psalmist will praise God for His love for them, for Himself, for His people, for Israel, for the world at large. I dare say that, may be stretching a little bit, but for the people of Israel. It is, it is news that, that, that is brought in breathtaking focus, though, in John 3. 16. You remember John 3.16, right? And we find we find in the words of John 3:16 that that Sunday school memory verse that probably all of us could recite this morning. Well, in that one verse, we find the love of God goes beyond mere just mercies that the psalmist thanks God for. Mercies goes beyond mercies of the rain from heaven and the fruit of the fields. It is more than just withholding wrath that we so richly deserve. No, it is a divine love that is expressed in giving God's only Son in the place of us. Remember, you can say it together with me. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Nowhere in all of the revelation of God have we ever been given such a wonderful verse of the love of God for humanity in so much that He would give His Son. The love of God condescends to such a degree that He would yield up His only Son and be wounded and humiliated on a cruel cross that I might have eternal life that I might enjoy His presence forever. That I might dwell with Him, and He would be my God, and, and and He'll be the God of me. Listen, I remember years ago we were, my pastor would preach at various locations, and he would take us, I was a member of the choir, and we would go with the choir and sing in various churches. And I remember one church way out in the Ottawa area, Hickson area, he was preaching, and we had sang, and it was at the time, this is around 2001, my my babe, my son Evan, who's a strapping uh, army army man now, he's in, out in Hawaii and stationed in Hawaii. But uh, back then he was a little old baby, about about the size of that one I could tuck in my arm. And uh, I, I remember during the service uh, he started acting up. And me and Carrie looked at each other and we couldn't find the pacifier. And Well he's in trouble he, I got to have that pacifier and so I, I I scooped him up and I took him outside to kind of quieten him down and went out to the the van that we had and was looking for that pacifier that got dropped out there and so I went out and opened the van, I found the pacifier and I kind of plugged him up, you know and I'm sitting there holding him trying to trying to get him to quieten down and it was around Easter time around around March sort of April like that looked cool outside, and I had him tucked inside of my coat as I was outside and and across the street. From the church way up on a hill, they had three white crosses that they'd put up there. And on the middle cross, they had like a purple sash. You've seen that things around Easter, they'll put that purple sash in representation of the passion of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus. And I don't know what it was about that scene, but I had my baby boy under my arm like that, and I was holding him close, and, and I looked at them crosses and I thought about, you know, how that God gave his only son at the time Evan was my only son. My only son, and I, and 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 I look at that cross and think about how God gave His only Son to be the focus of vile men's spittle, uh to be nailed and lashed to the cross, to have the a, a crown of thorns planted on Him, and and I, I begin to think about my own son, and, and and God did that for not only me, He did it for the drunk on the street, He uh, street, He did it for the pedophile, He did it for the sexual offender down at the jail, He did it for the murderer, He did it for all them. I begin to think to myself, would I ever give my baby boy... Would I ever even... Think for one millisecond about giving my son for the drunk on the street. There is no way I'm telling you in that parking lot. God broke me down and showed me something of the love of God for me, the love of God for humanity that hates Him, despises Him, rejects Him. Oh, the love of God! How rich and pure! How measureless and strong! It shall forevermore endure. The saints and angels' song. All. Oh, from the lips of Jesus, unlike anything that has ever been uttered before, God's love for us, a condescending love. Notice second of all, that not only do we see the words of love expressed, but I want you to see the words of exampled lessons. So now I want to go from a thematic look at the unique passages where Jesus talks about His, the love of the Father. our love for each other. our love for God. His love for us. Now I want to go into looking at how He taught. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter number 10. Here's where you need to keep your Bible handy. I'm going to go back and forth with some places. But Luke chapter number 10. Luke chapter number 10. And I want you to see this. Luke chapter 10 and verse number 21. Luke chapter number 10 and verse 21. Look at what Jesus said here. In the same hour, He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, listen to this, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus had a way of speaking to humanity, uh, to the common man. He often did this through parables. How many of you know what a parable is? It's a story. It's Actually, it doesn't actually have to come from Jesus. Actually, there are other parables. There's some parables in the Old Testament and some in the New from other people. But they are stories about common things that all of us experience, stories of an earthly origin that display or can be laid alongside and and reveal a spiritual truth. Jesus was amazing at this. Uh, Through these homespun stories of divine truth, Jesus was able to confound and confuse those who did not wish to believe. Remember what Luke 10 says. He said, Lord, I thank You that You're able to keep certain things from some people, and I'm glad that You're able to reveal certain things to other people. Jesus had a way of speaking in which He would confuse and confound those who I believe did not wish to believe. That's what the Pharisees would come and hear His parables and they wouldn't understand. They wouldn't understand his teaching. They wouldn't understand what he's communicating. Why? Because they came with a heart that would not believe. But it would yet illustrate to those who had a desire to believe. It's like for those that had a desire to believe, the light went on, they understood. Here's the Pharisee, the high-minded, the scribe, the educated. And they they listen to the parable and they're confused. Here is the poverty-stricken, the publican, the prostitute, uh, uh, the leprous man. And all of these can hear His teachings and they can be illuminated by it. You see, Jesus' parables are, are just something that are amazing in relating divine truth. So let's look at some of these. First of all, take your Bible, go to Matthew chapter number 18. Matthew chapter number 18. Matthew eighteen, and I want you to look at verse number twenty-three. Matthew eighteen, and verse number twenty-three. Now, in this moment, one of his disciples asks about forgiveness. Just previous to this, in, in verse number, uh, verse number twenty-one, uh, verse number twenty-one, Peter asks and says, "How often do I forgive my brother? Seven times." And Jesus says, "What?" No, not seven times, seven, So 70 times seven. So 400 and, uh, or 490 times, I think that's what he's talking about. 490 times. Well, Jesus is not talking about you keep a scorecard. <laughs> you keep a scorecard at that 490th time. Oh, buddy, you're going to let them have it. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a number that should not be reckoned. It should not be counted. And then, in the context of forgiveness, he tells a parable. Look at the parable in verse number 23. Here's Jesus talking about forgiveness in a parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay... His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payments be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, I will pay, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one. Of his fellow servants who owed him just 500, or owed him a hundred denarii, he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pray, uh, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that he had uh, what had taken place, they were, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What a staggering story. In this story, the master forgives a servant of this, what is it called, a hundred talents. In verse number 24, a hundred talents. Now I did some math. A talent talent is about approximately... A hundred pounds of gold. You go back in the Old Testament, you'll read about the wealth of Solomon and how he had so many hundreds of talents. Well, it's a unit of measure of weight of gold. So, one talent is approximately a hundred pounds of gold. Now, you put that into a calculator and go check your math on the internet about how much gold is, which is weighed in ounces you'll find out that a single talent, I don't know, I played Mario Brothers when I was a kid. You know, you ever played Mario on the Nintendo? And every time I think of a talent, I think of those gold coins he reached up and grabbed, you know, in that game. It's like a like a big piece of gold. One big piece of gold, 100 pounds, is approximately worth $2 million. So if I had a big gold coin, just like a Morrow Brothers sitting here, and it was about 100 pounds in weight, you're talking about $2 million worth of gold. This guy didn't owe one. He owed... What did it say? He owed 10,000 talents. If one is worth $2 million, then 10,000 puts the amount of gold, an amount owed in an astronomical... 10,000 times 2 million you're talking about trillions of dollars I mean that's that's national debt kind of money that's kind of money we can't fathom we don't understand it's just so big this servant owed not only a debt he could never pay in his lifetime, but a debt he could not pay in a million, billion years. He could never pay back his debt. His pleading for the king or the master to be patient was utterly ridiculous. He could never pay that. And what did the master do? Because he begged for mercy, what did the master say? You're forgiven all. The master didn't say, well, just pay me what you can. The master said, it's all forgiven. It's all forgiven. Amen. Then, what he does is in the parable, he turns around, and so the man forgiven now, he goes out and finds the guy that owes him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii is basically five bucks. Alright, Jesus fixing the, he's fixing to let the hammer down. Five bucks. The guy owed him five bucks. And he wouldn't pay it, so he put him in prison over five dollars. He, who was forgiven a debt that he could never repay, put a man in prison because he owed him five bucks. Now, does that seem right? No. So in the context... Of forgiveness, Peter's asking about forgiveness. How do I forgive someone that has wronged me? Do I forgive them seven times? No, Jesus said 70 times seven. 490 times. No, beyond that. Here's what he's saying. God has forgiven you. Listen now. God has forgiven you so much that for you not to forgive someone else looks as absurd as this man putting another man in prison for five bucks. Do you understand what he's saying? Does that not put our forgiveness, our right, our justification, our our redemption in Christ Jesus, doesn't it put it in perspective in a way that is mind-boggling? Why, if I'd been forgiven, about, for, forgiven by that king, I hope that I'd run out and grab the guy that owed me five bucks and say, you're never going to believe what happened to me. Grab him by the place. I've been forgiven everything. Ah, you Five bucks, let me buy you lunch. I'm going to buy you lunch. I don't care about that five bucks. I'm going to buy you lunch and tell you what the king has done for me. Oh, What a perspective that every single one of us would do well to remember when we have been wronged. Wronged. Notice also, not only the forgiveness of man, I want you to see next of all, the fury of hell, Luke 16. Take your Bibles to Luke chapter number 16. Luke chapter number 16. Let me find it here. Luke chapter number 16, and look at verse number 19. Luke 16 and verse number 19. There it is. And there was a rich man, pick up reading of verse number 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed... Uh, with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to, uh, to dip his finger in... Uh, to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am anguished in this flame, but Abraham Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner received bad things, and now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish, and beside all this, between us and you between us and you, a great chasm uh, has been fixed in order that those who would pass from where you uh, from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, "I beg you, Father, send send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may uh, that he may warn them, lest they also come uh, to this place of torment." But Abraham said, "They have Moses and the prophets; let they." Let them hear them. And He said, no, Abraham, but if someone does, uh, someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. Here we have another. Now, this I do not classify as a parable. Some people do. Some people say this is a parable of Jesus and this is just a... Uh, an extrapolated teaching, but if you study the parables of Jesus, you will never find one occasion, one other occasion in which he used a personal name, Lazarus. No, I believe this is a factual, historical account. But in doing so, and enlightening us with it, he does t- give us, he does give us a a a uh, a teaching, uh, an, an indication. of of life. The story is not about being rich and poor. Some people will say, well, because Lazarus was poor, he went to Abraham's bosom or to heaven, to paradise. And because the rich man Lazarus had much wealth, he went to a place of anguish and torment and pain. That is not what's being described here. No, this was about a preoccupation with this world's goods at the expense of preparation for the world to come. Uh, Lazarus received bad things in life, therefore he was preoccupied and thought of the next life, whereas the rich man was preoccupied with this life at the expense of what he experienced in in the life to come, in after death. You see, here He is teaching about, uh, about this perspective that we are to have. Jesus reveals to us in this passage that there is a day of accounting. There is an ultimate judgment. Your requirement is righteousness of which you have none. Born in this world and in your flesh, and in the condition that you're brought into this world, you have no righteousness you're you're you have sinned by by hereditary elements in that in that because Adam sinned death passed upon all men for that all have sinned we have that hereditary sin but also that actual sin that performance sin we have broken god's law we've all lied we've all we've all uh, we've all uh, committed adultery in our minds we've murdered in our minds we've lied we've 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 coveted we have not always kept god first in our lives we have broken god's law We don't have righteousness and that is God's demand. And so here we are being revealed by the teachings of Jesus, by His omniscient mind into this situation that there is a day of accounting. There's a judgment day coming that ought to concern. This rich man had no concern of what would take place after his life. Whereas Lazarus did. I believe that He did account for the world to come. We have no righteousness to commend ourselves to God. The only righteousness we can have is that which comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Matthew twenty five forty one. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed into the ever into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Listen from the direct lips of Jesus. There is a hell. There is a judgment. There is an accounting of our lives. Hebrews nine twenty seven says, "At his appointed a man once die, And after this, the judgment. There is an accounting day." We see not only the forgiveness of man, the fury of hell, but we also see the faithfulness of servants. Look, Turn back to Matthew chapter number 25. Again, Matthew 25, look at verse 14. Matthew chapter 25 verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them with his prosperity, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, and to according to each to his ability. Then he went away, and he who had received five talents went out, went at once and traded them, and he made five talents more. And also he who had the two talents made uh, made two talents more. But he who received one talent, uh, when he uh, uh, went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled the accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing his five talents, saying, Master, you have delivered me five talents. I have made five more. And his master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. And he also that had two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you uh, set you." Uh, Over much, enter the joy of your master. He also had received one, he who also received one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew uh, you would be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should receive what, is, what was on, uh, on my own interest. And So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents for to everyone who has will be more be given, and he will have an abundance. But for from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness, in a place of there there will be in a place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I know that's a, a projected longer text, but I want you to see what he's illustrating here. He's not illustrating salvation because that would be contrary to the teaching of the Bible. He is talking about our faithfulness as a servant our due diligence to our master Jesus now if you read on the epistles you will read read about the judgment seat of Jesus Christ where every one of us will give an account of the deeds bu- born in the body what we've done in the body how we have received some will some will be crowned some will have want some will have their works passed through the fire and they'll be found to be gold. Uh, silver and precious stone. Others will be wood, hay, and stubble. It will be burned by the fire. Here, I want you to see that Jesus is talking about faithfulness. Faithfulness. This is a judgment of stewards. If we have come to faith in Jesus Christ, if we've been born again, you must realize that we too will yet stand before God and give an account of our lives, not as sons. That's a settled issue. We're in the family of God. God doesn't reject those that He adopts. But, He does judge us as servants of what we have done for Him. Not to take away our salvation or to grant something special but it is to, uh, to judge us on what we have done for Him. There's a projected teaching that we can do here. But I do want you to see this. God has given every single one of us, in varying degrees, talents, gifts, abilities, desires of the service of God that are used, supposed to be used for God's glory. If we do not use those, there will be an accounting day. Just like for this servant who was given one talent. There is an accounting day. And so we are to be faithful in being a servant. If you're here and saved by God's grace, a part of God's family, a disciple of the Lord Jesus, if you're a Christian, then you've been given gifts of the Holy Spirit. And again, there's a protracted teaching. We could go into the New Testament about this. But regardless of that, you've been given something to serve your Master. And yet how many of us How many of us are guilty of our own self-service? Serving myself as opposed to serving Him. That's why our intentions, our motives always come under in this judgment seat of Christ. Jesus tells us that there'll be many who were great in that day. And what? The great shall be what? Last? And the last? Shall be first. There's some little old grannies. I knew a Miss Mildred Brown in the previous church I pastored, one of the saintliest women couldn't do a whole lot, but she prayed the prayer, she prayed the fire from heaven down and helped this preacher and encouraged him. I'm telling you, there's some great televangelists who are going to take a back seat to Miss Mildred Brown at that great accounting day. It doesn't matter that you're up here, that you sing, that you do something in the forefront for everybody to see, but just take your talent, whether it be five, two, or one, and use it for the glory of God, because there's an accounting day coming. You're not giving account to me. Don't try to show off something to me. Don't come with your cards laid out trying to show me what you've done. I'll give you a tip of the hat, but I don't know your motives. He does, and in that accounting day, He'll give the right accounting. He'll, he'll give crowns that need to be given, and and take away things that don't need to be given. You understand what I'm saying? All from the words of Jesus. Parables that should impact and shape our lives. The forgiveness of man, the fury of hell, the faithfulness of servants, also the fatherhood of God. Luke chapter number 15. Go back to Luke. You'll wonder, why are you going so much from Luke to Matthew? If you'll read the Gospel accounts, the majority of the parables of Jesus are, guess what? Matthew and Luke. There's not as many parables in Mark or in John. I don't think there's any in John. Maybe a few smaller similes in John, but no great parables. Here we find the fatherhood of God. Luke chapter number 15 and look at verse number 11. Luke chapter 15 is the great lost and found chapter in the Bible. The lost sheep, the lost coin, then what? The lost son. Look at me in verse number 11. And then he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the, of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in the country and he began to be in need. So, went, so he went and hired himself out to one of the cities of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he, was, and, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave to him and when when he came to himself he said how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread but I perish here with hunger I will arise and go to my father and say to him father I have sinned against heaven been before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son treat me as one of your hired servants he arose and came to his father but while he was still a great way off his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him and the son said to him father I have sinned Against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, "Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and bring a ring on it, put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, uh, and the, and." Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they begin to celebrate. Here we see a picture of the fatherhood of God in brilliant lavish, parabolic colors. God, Jesus Christ, displays the love, the fatherly love of God. Jesus pictures this lost son. Uh, a lost son who uh, to a loving father. And the lost son uh, was in lost in the world's pleasure. He had gone into ruin of sin. And then he remembers the goodness of his father, the greatness of his father. And so he decides, well, listen, it's better to go to my father and just be one of his sons servants, who he always treats fairly, than to stay here and starve. And so he, I like old Mace Jackson, he said he he kicked the pail, jumped the rail, and hit the trail, and starts making his way back to the Father. And what happens? The Father who's looking who's looking for his son all this time, sees him across town. You know, uh, the the way custom was, if that son were to make his way across town, uh, the, all the members of the town who knew the story would throw rotten tomatoes at him and rotten food and, and hiss at him and, and humiliate him as he makes his way back to the fire to the father, but you know what the father does to save the son the humiliation and the ridicule he runs across town old men in Arabic times do not run uh, they, uh, in order to run they'd have to pick up those long robes and show their white their legs off, bony little legs, that would to pull them up to be able to run here's this father wearing the indignity of pulling his robes up and running as fast as he can across town before anybody saw him and wrapping his arms arms around that son and kissing him so they would not have to endure the humiliation of walking across town. I tell you Jesus did that for us. He took the humiliation of the cross. He took the shame and ignominity of dying naked on a tree, beaten, bruised, beyond recognition. He did that to show the love of the Father so God could embrace us this day. So God could wrap His loving arms of forgiveness around us and welcome us eternally into His family as sons of God. I tell you, oh, the wondrous words from Jesus in just a handful of stories. He is the oracle of God, revealing the mind and the heart of God to sinful, blinded humanity. His words of expressed love. His words of exampled lessons, finally. His words of eternal life. In John 6, when Jesus was dissecting with the scribes and Pharisees just exactly what He was communicating by the miracle of the bread, He said this, John 6.63, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Words are spiritual insignificance and they are life. No truer words were ever spoken. The unparalleled speech of Jesus brought into sharp focus for humanity the the aspects of eternal life before the eyes of a holy God. Notice first of all, I want you to see the existence of an eternal state. Although all the world's religions find, find themselves at odds with the claims and the teachings of Jesus Christ, That's why, that's why Muslims and Christians, although some have common values, like, for example, uh, for example, the monotheism of Islam is very similar to the monotheism of Christianity there are certain similarities. They will always, uh, even though they are at odds with the person of Jesus, they do have certain things that are in common. Not only Islam, but other religions of the world have this in common with Christianity. Whether it is reincarnation, nirvana, paradise, higher levels, all of them agree that there is something out there beyond the grave. You ever notice that? All the world's religions indicate that the grave is not the end of the story. Unless you you equate atheism, which which is a religion, which could actually be called a religion. Atheism is a religion. It's a belief. Atheism says that once you die, that's it. It's all done. There is no soul. There is no anything like that. It just your body rots and crumbles and goes away. But there is, all the other religions of the world say that there is something after life. The atheists may conclude through a microscope of science and the dusty books of philosophy that death is the ultimate end of humanity. The deep recesses of the human heart find this unsatisfactory it's hard to swallow in our deepest recesses of humanity to believe that once I die that's it even the pyramids of Egypt in ancient times were built with this idea of there is another world there is something else after the grave why because our hearts Ecclesiastes talks about the hearts of man having eternity tattooed on there. There is something within us that says I don't want to die and, and there's also something that says there is something beyond this life. Here we find that enumerated in Christianity. I could go on to numerous accounts of deathbed confessions of atheists and agnostics that desperately in the hour of their death reached out in fleeting moments into the darkness of death, but these pale in comparisons uh, to the words of the one that defeated death. John 12, 48. You don't have to turn there, but listen. John 12, 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge Him on that last day. The words that Jesus has spoken will be our judge in that last day. That's unbelievable. That the words of Jesus, the things that He had enlightened this world with, will be the ultimate judge in that day. There is a last day. There is a day of reckoning. There is an eternal existence after the grave with only two destinies, an everlasting hell and an eternal heaven. Uh, The darkness of the pit or the eternal illumination of glory. The torments of the lake of fire with the delights of divine presence. Jesus made it clear there are two destinies after death. Heaven or hell an existence of an eternal state. Notice also the entrance into eternal safety. But Jesus, the Son of God, has the audacity to declare, yea, the authority to declare Himself as the only means of safety. He is a man who has dogmatically stated that He is the linchpin, that He is the only thing that directs the destiny of every human being that has ever lived. Jesus said in John five twenty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who has sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. Do you believe the words of Jesus? Do you believe what He said? Have you put your faith and trust in Him? Then we have the assurance by this man, the Son of God, that we have passed from death into life. John 10, 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow, them, they'll follow me, and I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of My hand. Jesus said, if you hear My words, if you, uh, if, you, uh, uh, if you respond to My words, if you hear My voice, then you have been given the gift of eternal life, and no man can pluck you out of his hand. John 6.40 for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Such claims might be chalked up to the ravings of a madman, some deranged narcissist, except for the fact that the one who spoke these words said in Mark eight thirty one, and he began to teach. teach. Teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Why do we believe the words of Jesus? Why do these words mean anything more than the words of Confucius? Why? Because on Easter Sunday, the man that said these words, did what no other man has ever done. He was raised from the grave. Bodily, physically, we're getting there. That's a whole message in itself. We're going to be there. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's stamp of approval that everything He said is true. Everything He said there has never been a prophet, a priest, there's never been a shaman, uh, uh, any kind of religious teacher that has ever gone into the grave and come out again and live forevermore. I tell you, there's no one like Jesus in the words that He said. He rose from the dead and was found alive by more than 500 people at one time. I can get into a lot of the, a lot of the... Uh, apologetics for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But one thing you'll find in history, one thing you'll find in history is that people have seen a lot of different things. People have seen things in their mind, hallucinations, people have hallucinated, but in history you will never find a mass hallucination. It's missing. Hallucinations are relegated to one individual. If Jesus was an hallucination by some sorrowful followers for 500 to see Him at one time is just one time in history. Can't be true. Can't be true. Jesus proved Himself alive by manifesting Himself to as many as 500 people at one time of such Was Saul of Tarsus the avowed enemy of Jesus? The one that was putting uh, Christians to death and in prison? And from an encounter on the road to Damascus and seeing the living Christ, he became its greatest apostle, its greatest author, its greatest theologian. I tell you, Jesus is alive. And because He is alive, because He was raised from the dead, everything He said, either has come to pass, will come to pass, it lays bare on our eternity the words of Jesus. In close, Dr. John Weldon wrote this about Jesus. Jesus is absolutely unique in the claims that He makes for Himself. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. How many other men have ever said that? Have ever said such a thing? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Again, how many other men have ever said that they in themselves were the only way to God? Every other teacher recommends this way, recommends that way, points to this religious truth, points to this standard of life, points to this rigorous exercise of religion. But Jesus Himself says, I am salvation. Come to me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come to Jesus. No, no man in history. Jesus, he goes on in the quote Jesus never claimed, excuse me, Jesus even claimed, claimed that 1,500 years before his birth, Moses wrote about him, and further that the entire Old Testament bore witness to him. All of these statements and many more like them leave us little choice. Either Jesus is who He said He was, God incarnate, or else He is absolutely crazy. End quote. The question is, what do you believe? You know, I've got a Bible here and I don't know how many words. There's somewhere I could find. 111,000 maybe words seems to come to mind. There's a lot of words in this book. And even in the New Testament, much less than the Old Testament a lot of number, a lot of words in this book. But if we were to condense all the words that, G, that are recorded that Jesus spoke, you would not have all of the gospels. there's much of the gospels, the description and everything else, but not His words. But if we were to take all the words of Jesus, there's a few scattered remarks in the epistles that are quotations of Jesus, maybe one or two there. And go to the Book of Revelations, there's large swaths of the Book of Revelation that are supposed that are the words of Jesus, written, read, kind of thing like that. They, they are the words of Jesus. If we were to take all of those books together, I mean all of those words together, they would probably be a pamphlet about this big. I mean it wouldn't it wouldn't be much. You wouldn't have much left of your Bible if you were to extract all the words of Jesus. Listen. And yet, a pamphlet, a thin pamphlet of words, small pamphlet, is enough words to change the world. The world. 2,000 years ago, nearly 2,000 years ago, this man Jesus said these words. And here in 2020, you and I are sitting in a building, relishing every word that he said. There's something about the words of Jesus. Too many people have encountered the words of Jesus and had their lives radically changed. Less, you know, not to mention the apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, but many thereafter have heard the words of Jesus, have heeded the words of Jesus, And have come to faith in Jesus Christ and and experienced radical life transformation. My question have you believed the words of Jesus? Are you here this morning and have embraced what Jesus says about eternal life? Have you embraced what He said about the forgiveness of sin and knowing Him as your Lord and Savior? I ask you, do you believe these words? Because these words are not from some dead, dusty bones in a grave in the Middle East or in Asia or in the mountains of Kathmandu. These are the words of the One who proved Himself alive before the eyes of His apostles was raised into heaven and has sent down His Holy Spirit and for 2,000 years has manifest His presence on this earth through the church of Jesus Christ who has the sole, the sole purpose of declaring His Word. We're people of the book, and good reason. Why? Because in these words is life. He's life. There's life in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's stand to our feet. I'm going to go to prayer since I've hosed up our recording and our CD. I don't even know what's up there as far as an invitation song, but I want to ask you this. As I go to the Lord in prayer, I want to ask you, I want you to bow your heads and I want you to think to yourself, have you believed on the Lord Jesus? You know, there's a lot in this message that ought to put all of us Christians on alert at loving our neighbor. You ought to take that home. I'm going to take that home and I'm going to put that in my pocket. And this week I'm going to be, I'm going to be chewing on that. My, my, my words, as a uh, my life as a servant of Jesus Christ, man, there's something to be said about that. I don't need to hide my talents. I need to go make, make investment for the kingdom of God. I, I'm going to think about this week. But above all, these words are life. If you do not know Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, while well, I pray, I want you to bow your head and I want you to ask God to forgive you of your sins. If you're here today and, and you know that you're lost, you, you've broken God's law, you're guilty, and you believe that Jesus Christ died on that cross for your sins, I want you to verbally, in, in, with your mouth, confess Jesus Christ, believing that He has died for you and raised from the grave. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That is the call of the gospel. Believe on the resurrection. Jesus Christ died and was raised for you. Believe that He is coming again. Come to Jesus and believe on Him for the forgiveness of sin. He will meet you like that father in the prodigal son tale. No matter where you've been or what you've done, He will meet you and embrace you in His grace and mercy if you'll call upon. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Romans 10, 10, 13 tells Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call upon Jesus like a drowning man to a man that can save. He'll do it today. He'll do it. He died for your sin. You can be saved today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. God, I thank you for the time that I came to faith in Jesus Christ. I was that agnostic. I was that atheist. I was that one that thought the religion was, was nothing more than people impressing each other, a bunch of do-gooders a bunch of people that don't know how to have a good time, don't know how to experience life. And God, in that one hour, God, I came to face-to-face with the words of Jesus that You would forgive my sin, that You would cleanse me. And God, You wrought heart transformation upon my belief in Jesus Christ. God, I pray for those that are here this morning that have never done that. I pray You'd give it to them. I pray that they would be granted the gift of repentance. It's all for You, Father. It's all of yours. Salvation is of the Lord. had said that from the depths of the, of the whale's belly. Salvation is of the Lord. You give it. And God, if there's one heart this morning is saying, I'm not sure. God, You have granted. You have opened their eyes to their need to the words of Jesus. To the life that is in the words of Jesus. And I pray they would embrace Him today. Oh God, help us that do know You to live according, to love one another as You have loved us. God, help us to be good servants of You. God, help us to make much out of what You've given us. Irresponsible of what it looks, uh, irregardless of what the world thinks of what we do or what we look like or how we manifest our lives, but God, that our lives are approved of You and we're Your servants and do what You have gifted us to do. God, help us to be that. God, I pray for those that know not the Lord Jesus. pray they come to You. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And amen.